So we are in the midst of uh, this series uh, about being connected, uh, connected to God, connected to each other and connected to the rest of the world. And what we have been doing is we have been um, looking at the first part of that, um, which is the part that you must start with. If you want to be connected to each other and connected with the rest of the world, you must begin with a foundation of being connected with God. And we started this, this whole series off with what we just recited together, the Shema. In order to be connected with God, we have to buy into this commandment. We have to buy in to this proclamation of faith that our lives are based upon loving God with everything that we have and loving one another as we love ourselves. When Jesus was asked what is the greatest commandment, he says those two things, the Shema And just as important, he says, is to love your neighbor as yourself. So we begin from there. We begin with this foundation of being connected to God. And now we take it to one another. By a show of hands, how many of you in here currently own a slave? Huh. Same as 930, none of you. Um, Yeah, it's kind of a silly question, right? It's kind of a question like some of you may be like, whoa, why would you even go down that road? You know that there was a time in Christianity where pastors stood up and gave biblical justification for the owning of slaves. There was a time not too long ago, in the grand scheme of things, where pastors would stand vehemently slamming their Bibles and saying that owning a slave was in God's design. Churches were split over it. Denominations, our own Methodist denomination, had a big kind of rift and shifting of of our jurisdictions of where we are upon how you fell on this issue. Not surprisingly... Mainly churches in the south had pastors who were saying that slavery was okay, and churches in the north had pastors who were saying that it was not. But both sides firmly stood in their camp, and both sides shouted at one another and threw stones at one another and attacked one another time and time again. While all the while proclaiming to believe in the same God, and to believe in the same Jesus Christ. That history of the church is a dark one in my estimation. But it's not the only time that the church has gone there. The church has done this amongst itself pretty much since we began. You have Peter and Paul getting after one another in Jerusalem in front of everyone else over the the need for circumcision. You have this great debate at the very beginning of the church that was kind of dividing people. From there on, it didn't change. Time and time again, we as the body of Christ have fought one another. A few years ago when we were on sabbatical in England, I was doing some studying in Oxford And um, one of the days took us to St. Mary's, which is the church there in Oxford for the whole university. It's like this really gorgeous, beautiful um, church. And um, and we're sitting there and we're learning. And and I was studying C.S. Lewis primarily and and, uh, and a lot of his great messages. Some of his great, great stuff was delivered from that pulpit. Um, But they were giving us kind of a a history of St. Mary's and some of the things that happened inside those walls. There was a time when the Catholics were in charge. 
St. Mary's, right? Makes sense. And they took some of the Protestant leaders that were around Oxford and they dragged them from that church and they took them right around the corner to this place on a street in the middle of two streets intersecting and and they executed them. Then the Protestants took over. And the Protestants, in their mercy, brought in some of the Catholic leaders. And they dragged them out to the same spot. And they executed them. These are two groups of church leaders who supposedly believe in the same thing. They believe in the same God. They believe in the same Jesus. And yet their differences they saw is so great that they needed to execute the other people. We don't go that far anymore. In this land, there are places where it still goes on. But here we don't go that far. But we're not immune from it. We're not immune from these inner bickerings. We're not immune from these inner fights. In fact, Throughout the centuries, one after another issue has risen to the forefront of Christianity for that day and has been the thing that people have made camps upon and were willing to die for. Time and time again, these issues that we look back on now and are like, really? Slavery? And yet, in that moment, there was anger, there was hatred. There was evil. For a time, it was the Enlightenment. It was this humanism. It was this this belief that, that human reason was bigger than divine revelation. There was this time when scientific thought was bigger than what God had to offer. In the 1900s, leading into our own time, it was the de-Christianization of the world. There were people who stood on one side and said, I don't need a church in order to know God. And in fact, the church takes me away from God. And so slowly and slowly they separated themselves and created this divide. If you want to see how this divide looks today, go to Europe. If you don't want to go that far, go to the West Coast and the East Coast. If you don't want to go that far, begin to see the buddings of it here. In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying and he says this prayer. But the thing is, so, so John is this gospel that's just really kind of a, um, an interesting gospel. I always, I've said this in here before. When a lot of times uh, evangelicals, when, when they you know, say a prayer with somebody, will hand you like a gospel of John and say, start there. And I'm always like, Why? It's so confusing. I read the Gospel of John. N.T. Wright has the best statement about this. He says, I love the Gospel of John like I love my wife. Or I I understand the Gospel of John like I understand my wife. I I love her dearly, but I don't understand her. I love the Gospel of John dearly, but I really don't have any idea what's going on. But the Gospel of John is this story that kind of has a climax in chapter 11. And and, and it talks about this Jonah sign. And and Jesus is laying it out that I'm I'm the Messiah. This is what's going to happen. He's calling his shots for Jerusalem and for the kingdom to be. And then he goes into this series of of talks with the disciples saying, 
It's going to be bad for you. You're going to be persecuted because of me, just like I was. It's going to be bad. You know, who's going with me type speech. And then he gets to chapter 17 and he prays. Now, the other gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, talk about Jesus praying multiple times. John puts him in there, which is really cool. And this prayer in 17 is kind of this scene sometimes as a consecration prayer. It's this prayer where he's looking back over his ministry and he's thanking God for the protection that he has given him during this time and thanking God for his presence. My father, you have been with me. Thank you. Protect my disciples. Be with them. He's kind of passing the mantle here because he knows that quickly after this comes the betrayal. Comes the cross. Comes death. He knows what's coming and and he's moving from him being the leader and passing the mantle on to the disciples. And he says this at verse 20. I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. You know what he's doing right here? He's praying for you. thought about he's praying for you for all anywhere who believe because of their message thousands of years before you existed before we existed jesus christ sat talking to his father just praying and saying for all for that guy michael And for Betty, and for Jim, and for Alice, and for all, anywhere. I pray for them. How amazing is that? I mean, I I know that God has known me since the beginning of time. And he has loved me the same length. But for me, in this moment, it just blows my mind that Jesus takes a second and he goes, For that Crocker guy. Pray for him. Sorry, that's an aside. I pray that they will be all one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me, so they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in this prayer that he goes on to finish in this prayer, when he stops and he takes a moment to pray for us. What does he pray for? Unity. He prays for unity. He prays that we would be one. As he and the Father are one, so too may we be one. So that why? People may know that they're loved. It says so that they will know they're loved. He's not talking about us anymore. He's talking about the rest of the world. May we be so united as the church, as the body of Christ, that everyone would know that they are loved. Before in chapter 13, he says, may they know 
that you're, they're loved because of their love, you know, and they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. May they know your disciples because of how you love them. He doesn't do that here. He says, may they know that they are loved because of how united we are. So many times the message that we send the rest of the world is that they're not loved. How can we love them when we don't even love one another? How can we be the agent of change and love and mercy in this world that God has called us to be when we're throwing daggers at one another? Now, we don't do it physically anymore in this country anyway, but we sure as shooting do it verbally. Boy, do we do it verbally. We attack viciously one another. Time and time again, we look at our brothers and sisters in Christ who supposedly believe in the same Jesus that we believe, And we condemn them and we banish them to where there is gnashing of teeth. When I was in seminary, I went to TCU, Bright Divinity School, which in my estimation was more concerned with um, making scholars than it was uh, pastors. I didn't want to be a scholar, not in my blood, but I wanted to learn how to be a pastor. And I wanted to learn um, to take that mantle from Jesus when he says, feed my sheep. And they just wanted to teach me Greek. And so, consequently, my tactic, um, my silent protestation of this was to sit in the back row and to take the TCU paper and to do the crossword puzzle. And this is how I spent three years a lot of money at TCU. I was in the back row doing crossword puzzles, periodically looking up. If the professor says it twice, it's probably going to be on a test. Write that down. There's another guy who kind of had the same feelings that I did, and he sat back there with me. And we would spend class after class doing the crossword puzzles together, criticizing the way in which the undergraduates had written the paper that day. We were smarter than they. There's somebody that comes to New Heights that used to write for the TCU paper. And if you're in here right now, it wasn't you. It was everyone else's article that we criticized just to get that out there. But we would uh, we'd sit back there and we and we just talk about, you know, whatever. Sometimes we'd come around to what was going on in the class and we'd say, wait, did you just hear that? It sounds like it's important. I thought you were listening right now um, type thing. And like, well, what did you just write down? trying to get through the class. But we'd also start talking about theology periodically. And this guy who sat next to me believed that a sin was a sin only if it was a sin to you. In other words, that if you believed that adultery was okay, then it's not a sin. And I'd sit there next to him and go, I I don't even get you. I mean... Cause, and he would like pull out some scripture references and he'd start telling me about the church history and why his theological position landed there. And I would sit next to him and go like, God put it in the top 10. You know, I just, I don't understand because here's some scripture too. And we would both have these kind of theological bases for our beliefs. And we'd have this conversation about it. The thing about it is, is never once did he like look at me and like condemn me for my belief. 
nor did I. Now, I told him I thought he was crazy. I'm like, you're crazy, but I still love you. What's six down? So many times amongst ourselves, we run into these thoughts. We run into these differences of opinion. We run into these different reads on the scripture. And we get ugly. Man, do we get ugly. We just come out and we attack. And we set ourselves in our position and we say, whatever you believe is wrong. And I'm not going to listen to you anymore. And they'll know that they're loved by our unity. I don't blame the church for this necessarily. I blame social media. Is anybody on the next door app? I know there's a bunch of people in this neighborhood that are, so some of you are. The next door app is this thing that um, has the ability to be a wonderful thing when there is a um, when there's a dog missing. You know, people are like, "Hey, we see this dog running on clover leaf, red collar. We couldn't catch it." Somebody chimes in, "Oh, that's my dog. Thank you." And they go and they get it. And somebody says, "My cat's missing," and everybody goes, "Yay!" Um, <laughs> it's not true. That's not true. Easy hammer, I hear you over there. And uh, they don't do that at all. Uh, so there, there are some good things that happen from it. I, I've never, um, I, I, there's been a few times where I've come really close to responding um, to someone, but, but I haven't yet, and I don't think I ever will if I stay on that app. Because here's what generally happens on Nextdoor. A lot of times it's just people complaining about other people. We are so easily uh, to take offense and to blame other people for different things these days. We're so easily to throw stones at one another. And there is no easier place than the anonymity, supposed anonymity, of social media. Even if their name is there, you're disconnected personally from the person. And so it's easier to throw a ball of fire at them. There was a lady who some time ago posted a video of her neighbor on next door. And her neighbor was out there, and he was blowing his yard uh, trimmings into the next yard over, into the neighbor's yard, right? And she, like um, Gladys Kravitz or whatever, was like pulled her curtain back with her iPhone, and you can see the vantage point that she's filming. And she's filming this happening. And then she posts it, and she goes on this rant about how horrible her neighbor is to do this. And it just was like raged up inside of me. He's the horrible one. You live across the street from this guy. You're his neighbor and you're outing him as a bad yard management person to the rest of the community. Not only you're doing that, you're calling him these different names and like telling shame on him is what she said. Shame on him. And people joined her in their just crushing of this guy. And I'm like, what? When did it be okay to like, who knows who this guy is? Who, you don't know anything about this person. And you're just destroying him. And finally this guy comes in and he goes, hey. 
it might have been a good opportunity for you to take a few trash bags and to walk across your street and introduce yourself to your neighbor. Say, hey, I saw you're doing some yard work. I just came over to, to help out and get to know you. I was like, finally, somebody with sense. But we're so often quick to do this. We do this all the time. And what Jesus is calling us to here is to be connected to one another in such a way that people may know they're loved. Does that message tell other people that they're loved? When you're just ridiculing and lambasting somebody, it's going to come around to me. They're eventually going to get to me. So often the church has found itself in this place of division. We found ourselves in this place of theological division and we find ourselves on one side or the other. And we begin to get louder and louder and louder. And unfortunately, it is the most radical that are the loudest. And they're the ones who are generally the most hateful. If we are to be truly connected to one another, we have to understand what Jesus means here when he says, hey, Be united as the Father and I are united. Be one so much so that people may understand that they are loved. A little bit ago I asked any of you if you own slaves and you all said no. But slavery isn't the issue today. Today it's homosexuality. And today you have two sides in, inside the church, inside the body of Christ. And both of them will stand on their side and hold the scripture up and say, this is why this is the case and the truth. And you don't believe me, so you are going to burn. Both sides will stand there and theologically and intellectually put forward their point all the while trying to destroy the other side. Do you think that when the rest of the world who stands against us looks inside at this conversation we're trying to have with one another conversation that they see love? That they see peace? That they see an ability for them to come inside and to be loved? No. Man, if this is how they treat each other. Because both sides believe in the same God and both sides believe that Jesus Christ died for them. And both sides are right. So how do we begin to act as Jesus was praying for us, that we are so united that people will know that they are loved. It doesn't mean that you give up on what you believe. It doesn't mean that you have to back down on your theological stance. It doesn't mean anything about that. What it means is that you can treat one another in such a way that from the outside you're like, man, they don't agree about anything. But look how much they love each other. They can have a conversation that is dividing our entire country, that is tearing denominations apart. They can have a conversation and still stay together and still respect one another and still love one another. 
if we are truly to be connected with one another, if we are truly to stand on the foundation of loving God with everything that we are and loving our neighbor as ourself, if we are, if that is the basis for who we are as daughters and sons of God. And if Jesus Christ prayed that one day as a body, we would be so united and one together that people would know that they are loved. We need to begin to love one another. We need to begin to be connected with each other in such a way that the world looks in and goes, man, I got to get me some of that. Because the rest of the world beats me down all of the time, but it seems like them, they don't. You know the time in Rome where the most people came to understand what it's mean, what it means to be loved by Jesus was? It's a time during a great sickness. This great like plague, sickness descends upon the city of Rome. And everybody who was healthy and had means left. With the exception of those who believed in Jesus. If we're not here to care for them, who will? You think they didn't have arguments inside of their church? You think that they weren't um, fighting over the color of carpet? You think that they weren't having great debates over whether or not a harp is, is allowed to be played in worship? Drums? <gasps> but they came together under the banner of Christ. They understood that what was bigger was more important. And we will be united as one so that people may know that they are loved. The people who saw the church operate in this way said, I want to be a part of that. What would it look like if we began to love one another, if we began to operate as a church, united, as the father and son are united? Wouldn't it be amazing for the rest of the world to look at us and say, Huh. Maybe I am loved. Maybe I can be loved. May we be that body. Let us pray. Gracious and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of the Spirit that you have released into us to give us strength, to give us wisdom and guidance. We thank you, Father, for the example of community that you set, being a God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. A God that is many but one. May we understand what it means to be many, to be diverse, yet to be unified. May we understand what it means to set aside our hatred and anger, not our beliefs, not our theology, but the venom that sometimes comes from defending it. 
May we set those things aside. May we understand personally what it means to be loved. And may we operate in a community that is unified, that is loved. And because of that, that shows love. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you need prayer this morning, Amanda is there to meet you underneath the big cross in the corner. Let's sing this together before we go.
upon you and give you his peace. It's in your name we go, in your name that we proclaim that you are Lord, that you are God. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. 